There we go. Showtime. Welcome to the show. I'm Brent Holland. Welcome, one and all, to Night Fright. My usual jaunt along the lakeshore of Lake Ontario tonight, and it was just beautiful. The sun was setting, glistening off the water. It's a perfect night, folks. You've worked hard all week. Kick your feet up in your most comfy chair. Relax. This time's for you. Get the coffee going, get the tea going, or a beverage of choice. It's the perfect night for you tonight, folks. Going to start off with some context first because it's important. We're going to be discussing something called the Manhattan Project tonight. And for the younger folks that may not know what this is, no, it wasn't a construction thing on Manhattan in New York City. This was the code name that the U.S. gave to its endeavor to build the atomic bomb, and that started around 1939 and wrapped up in 46. Of course, we know about Hiroshima and Nagasaki. That's where the bombs ultimately dropped. We're also going to be discussing a person by the name of Martin Bormann. Martin Bormann, folks, was one of Hitler's leading henchmen. He became Hitler's personal secretary, controlling all information to Hitler. He was considered by many to be the second most powerful man next to Hitler himself in Germany. Now about tonight's show. Now, what if I told you there's compelling evidence that one of Hitler's most evil henchmen, the fellow we just mentioned, Martin Bormann, made a deal with none other than the United States to spare his life and allow him to escape at the end of the war. Bormann's life spared because he offered up Germany's very own uranium to the Manhattan Projects. Now, that sounds like a great movie script, doesn't it? However... Researcher and writer Carter Plimpton Heydrich is considered by many the leading expert on the history of surrendered U-boat U-234 and its cargo of enriched uranium, which he tracked into the Manhattan Project and ultimately the Hiroshima bomb. Carter has served as director of corporate communications for a Fortune 500 company, as a global marketing programs manager for one of the largest computer companies in the world. And now he's an author as well. His book, Critical Mass, How Nazi Germany Surrendered Enriched Uranium for the United States Atomic Bomb. Welcome back to the show, Carter. Thanks for joining us once again. Thank you, Brent. It's great to be back. I have a quote I'm going to open up the show with, and this is directly from your book, and it's a quote from page 270, in case you're, you folks at home are checking to see if I've done my research. <laughs> and it goes as such. During my research in the National Archives, I located several reports of sightings and meetings with Borman, Martin Borman, that same henchman we just mentioned, suggesting the survival and whereabouts of a very alive Martin Borman following the war. Apparently the Office of Strategic Services, that's the OSS folks, which would later become the CIA, literally, knew where Borman was, while everyone else was searching high and low for them. A State Department report I found indicated that Borman was living, are you ready for this, in Spain and was running a Nazi escape operation directly from there. Wow, that's explosive, Carter. Can we start off kind of at the end, but the reason why I want to do that is because it's all going to tie in together afterwards. Can we start off a little bit about Bormann? Can you tell us about the final days in Berlin and Hitler's bunker and Martin Bormann's role in that? 
Yeah, to, <clears throat> excuse me, to understand Martin Borman's role in the bunker, you have to understand his role was actually considerably broader than what you described. He was, in fact, Hitler's private secretary, but what most people want, and that gave him a, a great deal of power, but what really gave him the power was he was also the chancellor of the Nazi party. He was the leader of the Nazi party, okay? So, you know, you talk about Germany, you talk about Nazis in that era. It's, this, it's the same thing, essentially, when it comes to their government. So, you know, when you understand that he led the party that was dictating and defining every operation that was going on there, you realize how much power he really had. And then you lay on top of it the fact that he was Hitler's closest friend, if Hitler had a friend, as well as his, uh, his personal manager, his business manager. I mean, they were, they were tied tight. So Borman was a powerful, powerful man. Um, he was also probably the greatest bureaucrat that ever lived. Now that sounds that sounds kind of real cold and and dusty, but when you understand a real bureaucrat and how they operate and how Borman operated, he changed the world by the things that he knew and the strings he was able to pull behind the scenes on behalf of Hitler. So, and that all comes together. You talk about his role in the bunker. So you have a, you know, the in the bunker Berlin is surrounded, Russia's coming in, the Soviets are coming in, uh, pressing hard, and everybody in the bunker is kind of either panicking or committing suicide or, you know, doing all these things. Not Borman. Borman is working very hard, uh, continuing to act like uh, he's got a plan and, and he's going to see it through. Um, he's working with Heinrich Mueller, who is the head of the Gestapo. He's communicating regularly by radio with Admiral Dönitz, who is the head of the U-boat Navy. Okay, he's the Grand Admiral, so he's the top admiral in the whole U-boat Navy, which is the lion's share of the German Navy at the time. Um, and it doesn't make any sense when you look at it in, a, in the context of the time. Why is this guy who is a political party leader having communications regularly with this military leader? That doesn't make sense in the traditional history and people throughout since then have tried to explain it in a lot of different ways but when you understand that Borman had on U-234 the U-boat you mentioned all this enriched uranium as well as other bomb making uh, nuclear bomb weapons and delivery platforms when you understand he's got that on that U-boat and he's got to control that U-boat and get it to pick him up and get out of town all of a sudden the things he's doing with Dernitz, their sleight of hand, Dernitz doesn't know he's being manipulated, but when you look at the context of what's happening with the U-boat out in the Atlantic and what it does at certain times and and then what Borman is doing and how he's communicating to Dernitz and the things he's saying to Dernitz, like he says, you know, um, they'll probably jam my radio uh, transmission, so don't be uh, alarmed if you start receiving transmissions from me from somewhere other than Berlin. Well, that's a nice cover. He's moving. He's going to Hamburg at that time. He's getting ready, and he goes right after he says that. He heads out to Hamburg. So, you know, when you put all this, this, the, these pieces of information that are separate into context, all of a sudden you get a pretty clear picture of what was really happening. And it was it was a a, a, a power play of you know, in my mind, the greatest power play that's happened in the in the world so far.
so far, excuse me. Bormann takes off, but he takes off after Hitler's killed himself. He waits till Hitler's killed himself, <laughs> literally just turned over power to Donuts. You just, you mentioned him. And um, so Bormann says, like, geez, it's time to get out of town. Did he have an escape plan all set to go and implement right away? How far back did that go when he contacted the United States and offered his life in exchange for that uranium? I don't have the specific details on when he offered his life. What we know is that uh, Alan Dulles had a um, emissary, shall we say, of Germany. We don't know the gentleman's first name. His last name was Longbane. And uh, he came to Dulles and offered a, a, a collection of documents that Dulles described. He called them... It, they were beautiful in all their pristine freshness, is what he said, and they were documents that he described as being relevant to uh, uh, exchanges, commercial exchanges Germany was having with another country. Um, now that becomes interesting as you track what U two three four did again and, and and this stuff, and then you track back into uh, the signature at the end of the manifest of U two thirty four is signed a single last name, Long Ben. Okay. Uh, there's also, and to connect this, kind of connect the dots, there's all kinds of dots to connect. So I'm going to hit the tops of the waves. And if you want the details, your reader or your viewers are going to, listeners are going to need to, yeah, get the book because it's just too detailed. Um, but uh, so Carl Wolf, he's a general. Okay. He was actually the adjutant between the SS and uh, Adolf Hitler, uh, and also was the head of the SS uh, involvement in Auschwitz and the, the building of developments there. Now, in Auschwitz, this goes counter to the traditional history. The traditional history says in Auschwitz, there was a, a uh, it's called Monowitz, Auschwitz Monowitz, IG Farben, which was the cartel of Germany, that was a big chemical cartel, they were building what the traditional history says was a Buna plant. Now, Buna is a form of synthetic rubber. And Germany, IG Farben's, uh, was the first, uh, invented synthetic rubber and licensed it, patented it and licensed it. And they had made three of these other plants already, three or four of them. Anyway, so during the war, they're making this synthetic rubber plant at Auschwitz using laborers from the from the inmates but the the at the Nuremberg trials after the war the directors described the the unit of the synthetic rubber plant as IG Farben's biggest failure they said that um, it cost and they they give an amount but the amount is equal to the amount of money the United States sent on its uranium enrichment efforts okay it's actually 10 million dollars more a Buna plant at the time was one twenty-fifth, less than one twenty-fifth that, that amount to, to build. Okay, um, so there's a start. It used now. This is a plant that, according to them, never went into operation. It used more electricity than the entire city of Berlin, which was the eighth largest city at the time. Okay, the only other um, process, industrial process on the face of the earth at that time that used anywhere close to that was the uranium enrichment effort at Oak Ridge. Okay, so you start looking, and there's others, when you read the book, you'll see all kinds of details. There's all kinds of, uh, of evidence that that 
synthetic rubber plant was actually a uranium enrichment plant. And one of the reasons that they did that, the Germans did that, is because the IG Farben had a deal the Germans and the Americans had a deal that the Americans would not bomb IG Farben plants that did certain things, one of them being synthetic gas and rubbers. And so that was a protection to keep her from getting bombed so they could, and they used that cover to create their enriched uranium. But all the details are in this book, by the way, Critical Mass, How Nazi Germany Surrendered, Enriched Uranium for the United States Atomic Bomb, and Carter Heydrich's our guest tonight and the research behind this. Now, just a couple of context can, can things. I, can I, can I, I started out, I, lo I lost the thread of what I was trying to make sure, on. Sure, please finish. I didn't lose it, but I didn't finish it quite often. That, that was General Rolf Wolf was in charge of that synthetic uranium enrichment process, essentially. Well, General Wolf talks in his Nuremberg interrogations, he identifies that he worked with a Longbin. And again, he doesn't give his first name, but he worked with the Longbin in his, in his offerings. And then General Wolf's the one who ends up um, apparently being the one who sent Longbin to Dulles to negotiate. And General Wolf, once Longbin initiates negotiation, General Wolf is the one who's actually credited with completing the negotiation. It's called Operation Sunrise. And it was supposedly, traditionally, the unconditional surrender of, of Germany's Southern Front, because by then, Wolf was the plenipotentiary of Italy, which meant he was over all of occupied Italy. So he had complete access, could go directly to Switzerland to do this. All these people and, and, and issues are connected, elements are connected um, in ways that are just, you just have to connect the dots. There's a lot more, like I said, but I wanted to make you, you start. We started out, we we're talking about Long Ben. I wanted to make sure we connected those with, with Wolf and Borman and Dulles and the enriched uranium. I just want to say, folks, Alan Dulles was uh, a spy for the United States at that point. He was working for the OSS, the Office of Strategic Services. He later became the head of the CIA. And uh, Kennedy ended up firing him because of the Bay of Pigs. Uh, there's books and books and books and stories about Dulles, but it's important for us to know the context of who this fellow was. I.G. Farben, as uh, Carter just mentioned, was also responsible for the manufacturing of a deadly chemical called Cyclone B. And that was used in the gas chambers to kill all those prisoners. So these are not nice people. Let me put it that way. Very, very ugly people. Is there any chance Hitler may have escaped with Bormann on the same route? You know, there are there are people and there are books out that follow that that line. Um, I actually um, ran into them off and on. Some of them have become friends. Um, I, I don't subscribe to that. I don't think that that's what happened. Um, but I didn't I was so focused on the enriched uranium and the bomb elements of it. I didn't, I got to where, the, and I say it in the book, there were so many lines I could have followed that it just kept multiplying, multiplying, and I had to pre prescribe what I was working on and just focus on the basic elements. And that was how this, how did the Germans get enriched uranium and how did we get it from them? And so that's what the focus was. Was there any chance the Soviets were offered any type of deal like that, too? And it was kind of like a, uh, a, a bidding war between the two? Any chance of that? Soviets might have been working on something themselves? Uh, I haven't seen any evidence of that. The, uh, uh, the, the, the Nazis hated the communists and the, and the Soviets. 
Um, and so there were, uh, um, I haven't seen any, any evidence, and I'd be a little surprised if they had based on that. They much preferred to work with the Americans. Um, but they did capture, now the, the, the scientist who created the enriched uranium was a gentleman by the name of Baron, Baron um, um, von Ardena. Um, and he was the first person to, he didn't invent TV, but he invented a German version of TV shortly after our people did. And he was the first person to actually broadcast a TV uh, signal uh, to the public. And it was the opening games of the Berlin uh, Olympics with, with, with Hitler. Anyway, Ardena, Ardena uh, was the... Um, the man who developed enriched uranium for Germany, and he was captured by the Russians after the war, and he became he won the Stalin Prize and became a hero of the Soviet Union for developing an atomic bomb for them by 1949. Now, prior to that, them having that, I haven't seen any evidence that they were doing anything significant or serious around nuclear energy or weapons. I just want to finish up with Bormann as well. Where did he head to once he got out of Germany proper? I just read a thing that said that he was in Spain as part of the rat lines. Did he remain in Spain or did he move off to South America like so many other Nazis did? No, he, he did move off to South America. He, so he, you know, Bormann, uh, with his connection to IG Far, but again, there's, it's very detailed, so I'm not going to go into all the details, but the... Um, he had, through his bureaucratic activities, he consolidated a shadow economy. He basically, he didn't want it. They learned a lesson. He learned a lesson in World War I, and that was they got wiped out and, they, and their economy got sold to the, to the allies. We got everything of value, and their economy collapsed. And Borman wasn't about to let that happen again. So he was very um, uh, 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 innovative, I'll put it that way in an immoral sort of, or at least amoral sort of way. And he was able to take, at the end, at the end of the war, he sucked as much of the economy into, into accounts and, and companies and cartels that were outside of the German Reich and uh, kind of created a ghost economy. And his idea, his whole point of surviving the war was to uh, reinvigorate that economy, bring it back to life in a more subtle way, in a more elastic way. Forget military force. The idea was to try and, and, and lead the wor world by economic force. And in fact, uh, I think it's Peter Hayes in his book um, wrote, actually used the term way back in, I want to say 67 or 68, European, European economic community. That was a term he used to describe what Borman was trying to achieve. So, and that's, uh, so, so he went to, to Spain, he had to stay in Europe to kind of tie off all his business dealings there. And then he moved on to South America. There was a great, uh, you know, for over a hundred years, they'd have strong German colonies down there. Germans were very welcome and felt very, uh, at home there because the climate and the, and the geography was very similar to parts of Germany. And so uh, he lived there for many, many years after the war. You go into a lot more detail about the controversy about uh, parts, body parts being found just outside a train station in Germany as well. And they did DNA tests. They found it that perhaps it could have been part of his body or not. And there was a whole story built around the fact that apparently Bormann had committed suicide not long after escaping Berlin. But all that seems to be fabricated, and all that seems to be some type of cover-up to cover up the fact that the U.S. did help him get out. And as 
I guess you would say part of Operation Paperclip. This could have been the beginnings of it. So all that for another day. You can get the book, folks, and find out all about that. What we're looking at tonight is the fact that in order to complete the Manhattan Project and the two bombs that were dropped on Japan, the United States just didn't have enough uranium. It's as plain and simple as that. So what Carter's research has shown is that one of the leading Hitlerites, if you will, Bormann, Martin Bormann, offered up his own life. In other words, you keep me alive and I'm going to tell you where the enriched uranium is. Not only that, I'm going to deliver it to your doorstep via you two, three, four, and that's where we're going to go now. Okay, so Borman, does he get on U234, or is he somewhere else at this point? He uh, he gets on U234. So U234, that's part of what, it's interesting, and I track it in the book, but U234 leaves, at the time when it left, originally it was in Christiansand, and it does a whole series of really kind of weird stuff that doesn't make sense, because it's supposed to be this U-boat that's fleeing to Japan with this both, you know, I think it's uh, 240 tons of the most high-tech, warm-making materials in the world. And so th that's the traditional story. But then when you look at that, I, I analyzed the log and I analyzed the, the communications and everything. U-234 was ordered to stay near Ireland, no, not leave past Ireland. And it was traveling at between one and a half and two miles an hour. Now, that that U-boat was able to, to make 16 and a half miles an hour and probably a little bit more uh, when it wanted to, so it wasn't hurrying anywhere. The speed it was going was just enough to maintain steering control of the U-boat. It was staged. It was waiting there for something to happen, okay? Now, before they left Christiansand, uh, there's a gentleman by the name of Wolfgang Hirschfeld who was the chief radio operator on U-234, and he wrote two books, one of them in German and one of them in English. Uh, I analyzed them both, and uh, Hirschfeld uh, said that uh, shortly before they left, he U-234, Captain Failer, who was the captain of U-234, uh, received a communication that said U-234 uh, only only follow orders from the Führer's headquarters, okay? So that's where we talk about Durnitz is at Borman's trying to control U-234 and Durnitz is, he's, he's hiding it from Durnitz. That's what we're, we're talking about. Now Durnitz caught on to this and so there's this little cat and mouse game going on between Durnitz and Borman, but Borman needs his U-boat. And so anyway, and then there's another kind of strange communique um, and Hirschfeld gets called into the flotilla uh, headquarters, commander headquarters, and is kind of grilled by the commander. Now, there's, this is a little radio guy on one submarine that gets pulled all the way up to the top commander, and he puts this, you know, cable in front of him, this radiogram in front of him, that says, uh, basically, it says, uh, uh, to my friend Hirschfeld, healthy return home, Bubby, signed Bubby. Now, on the, on the face of it, you don't think much of that, and, 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 you know, but the commander's going, what in the world is going on here, you know? And Hirschfeld, it's interesting that in, his book, in both books, he says how he described to the commander that Bubby was his friend um, Gerhard uh, uh, Geisman. I don't have the first name right. The last name was Geisman. Anyway, and he was the uh, head radio man at Lorient which had been captured, and th at which 
kind of that's you know kind of working okay except you're th I'm thinking you know well if it's captured why are the Americans letting him play on a on a high frequency you know deal because it came in over high priority frequencies um, after Hirschfeld describes what happens then he then he said makes a funny a funny couple of comments he says basically he says I told him this story so uh, you know because so that he wouldn't question further uh, basically those aren't his exact words but but basically he makes it clear that that wasn't the real story that wasn't really what was going on that was what he told the the flotilla commander to get out of the squeeze he was in so obviously it was from somebody else with something else and i believe it happened to be a, a message a, a coded message saying you know um prepare to, to return home and i believe bubby is foreman um so then you have, uh, after that, you have uh, a, on the same day that Bormann flies out of Berlin, which is burning around him, Bormann and Mueller both fly out of Berlin, U-234 is out in the Atlantic, you know, going two and a half, mi two miles an hour, and all of a sudden it turns around and heads back. Um, it just turns around and and kind of goes, qu goes quiet. That's it. There's nothing in the log until two weeks later. Well, and the first thing you get when you start getting signals of, of U-234, he starts sending signals saying, I'm U-234, I'm here to surrender, and he gives the location and a speed, okay, but the United States has him direction finders on him. They're triangulating him, and he's not where he says he is, and he's not going the direction he says he is, and he's not going the speed he is. He says he is. He is coming from a direction just a little bit south of the English Channel, he's going as fast as he can go now, okay, and and he's going straight for the United States, okay, which is totally different than what he said he was doing. Now, just south of the English Channel is the Bay of Biscay. The Bay of Biscay is in north; it covers northern France and and uh, uh, western France and northern Spain. And Borman ended up in Spain. So, the um, one last element in here, and there's a couple of uh, pieces of it, but uh, um, Field Marshal uh, Montgomery from the English said that uh, they had reports that Borman was in Hamburg and um, that they were they were trying to find him and that he escaped on a on a submarine on a U-boat, but they were more interested in the U-boat than they were in Borman. Now that's a weird statement to make because what's a U-boat compared to Borman? Okay, unless this U-boat is something special. If the U-boat's got the power to change the world, all of a sudden it becomes a higher priority than, than Borman. Lastly on this subject, um, Joseph Stalin said to uh, um, Harry Hopkins, who was Roosevelt's emissary in Moscow, he told Hopkins that he, his intelligence reported that Martin Borman had escaped on a large U-boat from Hamburg. Um, he had flown out of Berlin on a light plane with a woman and two other men, okay? There's a whole story behind that. I won't go into details unless you want, but it's in the book, and it's fascinating. That whole thing is fascinating. Uh, and then he ended up in Hamburg and escaped in a large U-boat from Hamburg. U-234 was the largest, the only large surviving U-boat in the U-boat Navy at the time. It was three times larger than any other. So large was, you know, a distinctive designation for it. And... Just all again, all the pieces. There's no. I, I didn't find any document that said Borman escaped this way, but 
there is so much evidence in there. And when you compare it to what the traditional history believes and the other things that are going on, you just have to, you know, if you don't, if you're not biased by what the hit, traditional history has said, you just, you know, it just, it's just plain. It's obvious. By the way, folks, April 30th, 1945, that small plane with three men and a woman left a place called Tiergarten. Tiergarten, folks, I guess the best analogy, close, close enough anyways, would be a Central Park in New York, except that it had long running streets. So a small plane, no problem to land there. And uh, there's no question, it wasn't that far from the Hitler bunker that they could have made it there at that point and gotten the hell out of there. So the possibilities are there. And this it's is not, there's not even a question about it. Spear in his book, uh, um, Inside the Third Reich, describes the runway on the tear garden and how it worked and flying in and out of there himself. It was a known fact and is accepted part of the traditional history. What's interesting is the plane they flew out on, which was a Fiesler Storch, is capable of, I can't, I'm not sure I remember this, but it's capable of taking off, I think, in either 60 or 90 meters. It had tiny plane with big wingspan and it just gets up fast. This plane was overloaded. It's only designed to carry two people that had four in it. Hannah Reich, the lady pilot, said that they almost hit the statuary on the top of the Brandenburg Gate trying to get uh, get lifted off. Well, the Tiergarten runway is something like 1,600 meters long. It took them that long to get enough speed and to get high enough. They still barely cleared it. So, you know, interesting Another interesting piece of evidence. The JFK Assassination, the definitive book by Brendan Holland. From inside the Oval Office to Davy Plaza, first-person witness accounts. Order yours right now, nightfrightshow.com. There's a Canadian connection in this, which I was surprised to read about. This is the first time I've heard about this. So U-234 is crossing the Atlantic, heading towards the United States. Somehow it ends up in Canadian waters. Can you tell the rest of that story? And there's a little bit of cloak and dagger happening there too. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. Um, so, and this is all part of the traditional history. There is a complete traditional history of U-234, which includes, was that a Stanford coffee mug? Okay, just needed to check. Anyway, it, it, <laughs> it is my, my, it's not mine. I have a McGill one from my other nephew. My nephew went to Stanford, folks. Uh, he's been on the show. He's our first rocket scientist in the family. I'm so proud of him, and he brought me this when he graduated. So uh, kudos to Tyler Reed. There you yeah. go. Congratulations. Anyway, so anyway, the uh, um, U-234, obviously, the deal with Mormon is it's going to surrender to the United States. Well, like I said, they, they after it gets through the English Channel, it gets out and is trying to make make it to a certain point on the map that will be uh, in alignment with where it says it was, but it's not, and the diffraction finder find out it's not. But he's already open on an open radio said, here I am, I'm coming to surrender. He's expecting the United States to say, okay, we'll come get you. And what happens is Halifax, Nova Scotia says, okay, you're in our territory. You're ordered to surrender to Halifax, okay? Um, and he, right off the bat, he, he kind of ignores it. He keeps sending false um, positions. Of course, now the United States knows he's not in position, but Canada doesn't. So he just, he sent him, but Canada sends a plane out and they see, they spy him. And then they know he's not in the right position. And they tell him, 
you're not in the right position. You need to, you know, you're not going the right way. And it's all, you know, it's just crazy what's going on out there. And so, uh, and, and, and he keeps kind of prevaricating. And finally, he just shuts the radio off and stops, stops responding. You know? He doesn't shut it off, but he stops responding at all to Canada at all and just ignores him and keeps heading for the United States. Sorry, Canadians. I love you. My wife's, my wife's mother was Canadian. We, uh, she has family there in Ontario. She was there last year. I was there the year before. Lovely. That's great. Yeah. The, now, the U.S. purposely blocked radio communications, too, between the RCN, Royal Canadian Navy, and the submarine. Now, they don't do that yeah. for without a reason. I mean, there must no. be a serious reason. Any idea where that order to block those communications emanated from? The well, Navy, obviously, or higher up? Obviously idea well i think it came from higher up um and i don't think there was explanations given for it probably because if you give too much of an explanation it becomes too well known what's going on but i think higher up said that you boat's not not surrendering to canada block communications and they and and hirsch hurt not only hirschfeld but nasro who was the commander of the uss sutton which was the destroyer to which u234 eventually surrendered to if i recall correctly Nazro himself wrote in his brief, and Hirschfeld wrote in his uh, books that the Sutton ordered, started jamming their communications, and then ordered U-234 to only sig only communicate with them by uh, semaphore uh, signal lights, which is what they did, and how the, how the Sutton brought them in for the final priest crew to to uh, board board them. So it was all very, uh, you know. When I saw the, the, the hunt for Red October, they kind of do that kind of scenario at the end. I'm like, I, I know where they got that. I don't know if he got it from there, but that's happened before for real, you know? Yeah, that's, that's a good analogy, actually. And it's worth noting, folks in Canada that are listening right now, at the end of the war, the Second World War, we had the third largest navy in the world. There was the British fleet, of course, then the United States, and then Canada, because we made so many ships to get the, um, the supplies over during the, uh, the battle for the Atlantic. So that's just a little side note. I wanted to talk a little bit about Hitler and uh, why, you know, they must have known early on that they had the potential to make this bomb. And the reason why I mentioned that is because you brought something very, very important up. I've never seen another book bring this up. The fact that one of the reasons why Hitler invaded Czechoslovakia wasn't just to get the Sudetenland back, but because it had the highest uranium content, I've got it mixed up, the highest, con uh, highest content of uranium, yeah, yeah uh, along those lines. And that was a big part of why they went into Czechoslovakia as well. So if they knew this in 1938, why didn't Hitler just put off and wait until the damn bomb was ready and then he could go and invade Poland in 1939? Any ideas, any speculation? <laughs> Well, yeah, at that point, it was all theory, you know, and uh, he wasn't going to wait around. He had a plan and a, and a schedule in mind, and, and nobody knew for sure. I mean, in 38, 38, they were just starting to make, you know, or, uh, calculations on what they thought critical mass might actually be. Critical mass is the amount you need to actually sustain a chain reaction to have an explosion. Um, and it ranged anywhere from 15 pounds to 1,600 pounds. On, depending on who was calculating it, it was that much of an unknown. That was just for starters, and then it was okay. You're talking about not 
just microscopic, but you're talking about subatomic particles, right? U two thirty uranium is 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 U on the on the periodic table, right? U two thirty eight is the uh, majority isotope in uranium, and it's stable. It is ninety. 99.3% of uranium is U-238. The part that's has a, that has a structure that will fission and release that en energy is called U-235. Now, there's an interesting thing there because U-234 is carrying U-235, and a lot of people have made a lot out of that, and it's kind of a spooky deal, but it's coincidental. But anyway, so that U-235, they got to figure out a way, some kind of process to separate not just to separate those atomic particles, isotopes, okay? You're talking about 1939, 1940, they're starting to look at this. How do you do that? It was a total unknown whether or not it was going to be successful, and if it was, whether it would take five years or 25 years or 200 years, you know? So it was all, it was all theory at that time, and so he wasn't going to wait around. Um, but as soon as... As soon as he found out what the opportunity was, he started investing a lot in it. And that actually, Borman, um, I've covered in the book again that the, the traditional history is that the German um, nuclear weapons were under the military in Germany. And military did have a program, but it failed. And it is what we know Heisenberg to have worked on. And it was an effort to make plutonium, which they failed on. There was a reason for that, and I go through it in the, bone, but in the book. But that is used as a cover for what actually happened, and that was Borman was connected to um, Ardenna, von Ardenna, and he was also connected to another really interesting guy. He, along with Robert Oppenheimer, his name was Fritz uh, Haldermans, they were the first two to come up with the theory that proved to be correct of thermonuclear energy, that the stars and the sun are fueled by fusion of hydrogen, okay? Haudermans, Fritz Haudermans, when he, when he was from Austria, when Hitler became, became powerful in Germany, he headed to the Soviet Union because he was a communist anyway. But he ended up in the Soviet Union's prison, and Germany brought him back under and and made a deal with the, uh, that he couldn't work in the German government on anything. But he ended up working for von Ardenna, which wasn't, it was kind of quasi-government, but it was funded by the, get this, the Postal Ministry, which reported to Borman, okay? And Borman was constantly ordering the head of the post office, the Postal Ministry, to do all these research projects and to fund him. And by the way, the head of the Postal Ministry was a guy by the name of Richard Onesor. And he was a credentialed doctor of physics and mathematics, and he was on Hitler's Reich Research, Nuclear Research Council. All these points, you know, you just keep connecting dots, and it just, it just, it's frightening, it adds up. And you know, folks, if you're going to hide a nuclear program, where's the best place to hide it in the government? The post office. It's probably the most efficient on both sides of our border of any, any, well, maybe the IRS and the CRA here. Even if it was efficient, who's going to think the post office is making bombs? Exactly. But it's part of the traditional, it's not part of the traditional history that they made these this bomb. It's part of the traditional history that they're the ones that 
came up with the financing and and, and uh, oversaw their research laboratory oversaw the development of a process for um, hijacking the communiques, the secret line that went under the Atlantic between Roosevelt and Churchill. The post office oversaw the German process to get in there and get those communiques, and Hitler was reading the discussions between, and this is part of the traditional history, This you, you can't argue this, Hitler was reading the discussions between um, Roosevelt and Churchill six hours after they had had their discussions, okay? And that was all done through the auspices of the post office, which reported up through Borman, who was head of state, essentially. Folks, Carter Heydrichs with us tonight. His book, Critical Mass, How Nazi Germany Surrendered Enriched Uranium for the United States Atomic Bomb. All this magnificent research in greater detail and greater depth is in his book. I urge you all to get it, www.nightfrightshow.com, www.nightfrightshow.com. Just look for tonight's guest book cover and just click on it. That'll take you right to a spot where you can order it. Okay, let's jump to the Manhattan Project. Can you give the folks that are just joining us, um, the younger folks, if you will, uh, an overview of exactly what the Manhattan Project entailed? Exactly would take a long time, but I'll give a real high-level kind of thing. The man Reader's Digest is fine. <laughs> Two minutes would be great. Just a quick overview. Okay. So the Manhattan Project, as you said at the top of the show, was the um, code name for the United States effort to create nuclear, the first nuclear weapons. Um, and it, uh, it was, uh, it create, they found, they discovered early on, as did Germany, that there were two ways to create a nuclear weapon. One of them was through enriched uranium. And one of them, when they found out they could bombard U-238 with, um, neutrons and it would morph to plutonium and plutonium was unstable and was an even better explosive than enriched uranium then they started working on plutonium bomb and in fact plutonium was it works in threes and i don't know why so there's probably a way to figure it out but it was three times more powerful they could uh, a plutonium bomb only used one third the amount of material to be in for it to reach critical mass and it was one-third the cost of uranium so of enriched uranium so it became apparent in both programs that plutonium was the major option okay what they were going for and and so the manhattan project in the manhattan project that's what they were focused on how do you make enriched uranium how do you trigger it triggering it they found out was easy how do you make plutonium Make plutonium was comparatively, compared to enriched uranium, was comparatively easy, really, really hard to trigger. And so that was the problem. Um, and so as we get to the end of the war, we've got two options for a bomb. Well, well okay, I'll continue on that track. We have two options for a bomb, a enriched uranium bomb and a plutonium bomb. But uranium is so slow, we only have enough uranium for one bomb. And nobody thinks one bomb's going to end the war. We have all kinds of plutonium, but to trigger plutonium, they took a, they described it as a as a, a sphere of plutonium about the size of a small grapefruit or an orange. Okay, right, size of your fist, a little bigger. They surrounded it with a six foot ball of high explosive that was they call it lensed, but it was focused to to pressure 
put an equal pressure on that sphere and just and um, compress it until it reached critical mass and could contain a chain reaction and it would blow up. The, the only way they could do that was they had to fire 32 detonators within one fifty thousandths of a second. Now if one of them did not reach that one fifty was off by more than one fifty thousandths, it would leave a low pressure and it would blow the plutonium out and you'd have a dud, you'd have a dirty bomb sitting there, but you'd have a, a, a dud that wouldn't explode. Nobody wanted a dirty bomb at the time. Um, and so those were the challenges that the Manhattan Project and the Germans faced. The Germans focused on plutonium, they made errors in, in how to develop it and never, the German military focused on plutonium and never uh, achieved it. The German post office focused on enriched uranium and made enough to put a, 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 um, 1,120 pounds, 560 kilos, that's 1,120 pounds of enriched uranium on U-234. That's enough to make 10 to 12 enriched uranium bombs. And that's what we got from the Germans. Were they as far ahead as we were led to believe? Because, you know, I'm going to go back to Einstein, Albert Einstein, folks, and a, and a lot of theoretical physicists got together and wrote and warned FDR, Roosevelt, that the Germans were way ahead of the Allies in making this bomb, and this bomb would end all humanity, for argument's sake. Were they as far ahead as we were led to believe at that point? Were we ever neck and neck with them when we just surpassed them? The Germans? Um, you know? the, whole point, the whole point of this story and the whole point of my book is they were ahead of us the whole time. Okay? They're not in the plutonium. They failed in plutonium, and that's the story that General Groves, who was the head of Manhattan Project, said the Germans failed. We thought they were ahead of us, but they weren't. Their plutonium failed. And so we were lucky enough to win the arms race and, and do this. That, what he doesn't say, but what he knew is do, because they had the uh, uh, synthetic rubber plants at Auschwitz, they were able to enrich the uranium. Now, there's, your, your audience is probably saying, okay, I need some proof of this, okay, everything now is speculative. The uranium on board U-234, so there is a traditional history about U-234, and it is that it was surrendered, and there was 560 kil kilograms of uranium on the U-boat, and after that, they don't know what happened to it. That's kind of the traditional history. Well, sort of. Once my book, first edition of my book came out 20 years ago, then um, Colonel Lonsdale, he was retired then, obviously, but he then he said, well, yeah, we did take the uranium in, but it was too late to use in the bombs. My book proves that that's not the case either, but anyway, so the, um, whilst where I was going with that, where was I going, Brett? <laughs> the, that's okay. Here, I'll help you out. There's a great quote, uh, folks, from Dr. Belmer Bergen. And he's the former Los Alamos National Laboratory Director of Nuclear Weapons Program. And he confirms, folks, that the uranium on board U-234 was used, let me repeat that, was used in the bomb that dropped on Hiroshima. Now, if you need more credibility than that as a witness to confirm that that uranium was used, I don't know where you'd go for it.
So, I, I mean, there's, there's proof right there. And um, there's a lot more proof in this book, folks. And, it, you know, he's done incredible research. And a lot of people say, well, it's revisionist history. All history is revisionist. As, as, they, you know, as we get closer, you know, there's going to be new files, for example, coming out on JFK at the end of the month. I hope they're released. So that's going to change what we've known up till now again. So when files come out... Um, Everything gets revised. You know, I had Churchill's secret spy on. He was 83. That was a few years ago. He was only allowed to tell his story in 2010, all those years after the war ended. So, yeah, you know, that changed a few things, too. So, yes, all history, it, it's kind of organic, if you will. It changes once those files become available. And you've looked at those files. You've done the research yourself. And let me follow up on Delmar Bergen because Please he's a do. fascinating guy. He is exactly what you said. He, 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 he's retired now, but he was the director of the nuclear weapons program for Los Alamos. He also not only endorsed my book, he wrote the foreword to the third edition. Okay. And he says I got it right. And so when the, when the uranium that was on, where I differ from the traditional history is they have documents. The U.S. government has documents saying how the uranium was stored and how to handle it and all this stuff. And, and Bergen, not only Dr. Bergen, but Dr. Um, Sandquist, who was a, the, a uh, instructor of nuclear physics engineering, uh, uh, nuclear engineering at uh, West Point, United States Military Academy at West Point. Uh, I, have, I have no fewer than five world-class physicists. Every one of them says that uranium stowed like that with handling precautions like that was enriched uranium. There's no doubt about it. It is a smoking gun. It, there's no document that says enriched uranium, but the description of, of, of how it's handled and how it's stowed, there, it could be nothing else but enriched uranium. They're all in agreement. So the proof is there. So if the Germans surrendered enough for 10 bombs of enriched uranium, where did they get it? Some of the reasons, one of the reasons I came out of the third edition was the, um, for all the years I've been, since the book came out and I've been presenting to people and I've been going through the, through the, the uh, a presentation, going through the documentation, everybody, you know, they're all on board except they said, if that was true, there would be spent uranium somewhere, masses of it in Germany, and there's not, so it can't be true. And I always said, you know what? It, we haven't found it yet. It's there. I guarantee you it's there because we can't have enriched uranium on a German submarine and not have spent uranium somewhere. Well, in 2013, or was it 2011? July 13th, 2011, I think it was. I thought it was 13, but go ahead. You go so ahead I, and tell the story. Know, backwards. It's been so long. I, That's I okay. We talked about it last time you were on. They found yeah. it under the mountain. Go ahead. Tell the folks. Okay. Well, they found it in, a, in salt mines. They found 126,000 126, barrels of spent uranium in a salt mine outside of Hamburg. Okay, now to put that in context, you're talking about um, if you just take a conservative estimate of what a barrel is, I used 40 gallons for a barrel, a European barrel, it's 375,000 tons of spent uranium. Way more spent uranium than we ever produced during the war and for a long time after that. Okay. Um, so there's another smoking gun, and and the documentation on it says this is spent uranium from the Hitler's nuclear bomb effort program. Okay, 
That's a smoking gun. There's no other way to read that. Now, the historians, the problem with, with the history right now, my history has never been put in a newspaper or on the news or anywhere where they give all the pieces of context together. It's always one off here and one off there, and it's the whole story isn't told. So the historians are saying, well, it can't be enriched uranium. It can't be spent uranium because we know that the Germans never had a way to enrich uranium, and there's no way they no proof they did enrich uranium. But U-234, according to Bergen and others, had enriched uranium on it, and Auschwitz had what could only have been a enriched uranium plant. The other thing I didn't say about that is I had two world-class Buna experts, both of whom, one of them ran Buna plants, built and ran three Buna plants. The other one was an expert in Buna and synthetic rubber. They both said there's no way that was a Buna plant, not a chance in Hades, okay? It was enriched uranium. So there's three There's three smoking guns. This is true. This is what really happened. You know, Von Braun was working on the V-2s at the time. That was going to be a great delivery service for it, a potential atomic bomb as well. They were working on something called the Manhattan rocket as well. Any chance he knew about this stuff and kept his mouth shut while he was working for NASA? If there's a chance, it would be. I would say it was really, really thin. There was very few people... It's not the kind of thing the Germans wanted to get now. So you didn't have enough. Oh, you, you didn't get it. There's the damn music. We got to go. Thank you so much for this great book. Uh, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Critical Mass: How Nazi Germany Surrendered Enriched Uranium for the United States Atomic Bomb. Carter Hydrick's been our guest tonight. Thank you so much for coming on as a super trooper, and uh, much appreciated. Good to see you. We'll see you again, my friend. All right. Take care. You too. I'm Brent Holland from Night Fright. See you all next time.